0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Beyond Sustainability podcast, brought to you by Newfields Environmental Consulting. I'm your host Richard Williams and in this episode we're going to have a holistic look at the remediation industry as a whole. Joining me in this discussion is Billy Hall. He is the chairman of the board of Newfields, has 47 years of experience in environmental remediation and founded Newfields 26 years ago. Billy, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, good morning, Richard. D- d- delighted to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm going to start off. You've had 47 years in the industry. You've obviously seen or worked through a lot of changes. Can you give us an idea of what the environmental remediation industry was like 47 years ago when you first started?
1: Well, when, when I first started the, back in the early 1970s, it was when there, it was at a major break point in the awareness that these industrial activities that we had been engaged in that really kicked into high gear after World War II, that there wasn't an infinite sink to absorb these contaminants. And it really got triggered by first huge mercury scares in the Great Lakes, um, an awareness that led to a real change in attacking the point sources, uh, like air emissions and point sources from Water emissions, uh, wastewater discharges, both industrial and municipal. And the major programs that started off in the early 70s were really targeted towards those programs. Um, and uh, the, the, the change from that, uh, the, we then started into an evolution of those solving those problems began to create a whole new set of problems. There was already the issue of what to do with solid waste, but that kicked into high gear after we started dealing with point sources, that the, you then created a whole new set of waste streams and you had to have some place to put it. Uh, and that's, that is what led to the next tier of problems or really accelerated it, which was land disposal and the impact on soil and groundwater. So that was kind of the evolution that occurred during the
0: 1970s so yeah, back, back then you obviously didn't have the technologies and um different I, I suppose different ideas we have today what was what were you working with what sort of tools did you have at your disposal
1: well the, that was the, the problem nearly all the tools that we had at our disposal were from the geotechnical and uh, hydrogeology efforts that were focused on the use of land the geotechnical techniques for determining what are the geo and the geophysical properties of the subsurface. And then from the hydrogeology standpoint, it was from uh, the tools determining uh, what is the availability of water, what is the flow rate, where is it going, and the the modeling capability, the ability to make predictive understanding, both in the chemistry of what happens to constituents once they are released into the subsurface. We just didn't have it. you know, And, and that persisted up until uh the early or persistent in the 1980s but there really wasn't even an ex, uh a beginning to a, a comprehensive development of techniques in the academic world or in the regulatory world until the 1980s
0: so back then, was it what sort what sort of guidance we, we sometimes rely on guidance now to to sort of um Ensure that we're correctly. What sort of guidance were we working towards then? If it wasn't, if it wasn't well developed.
1: The guidance was was uh, consider the simplicity of it with the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, which dealt with the the solid waste component. To a large extent, it was also um, liquid waste, but it was really targeting towards life cycle management of waste and. They they knew that there was a backward looking component of it that had to deal with all the different solid waste management units. Well, the the monitoring requirements was uh, three downstream wells and one upstream. Uh, yeah, we, we we came into sites when I first were was doing inventories back in the early 1980s at industrial facilities. You 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 can't see this stuff. You know it's underground. Even a a waste management unit doesn't look bad you know uh at an intuitive level there was just a real lack of understanding of where this stuff was going there's a uh disposal pond well the pond looks pretty it's got grass growing on it It may have ducks sitting in it i mean you don't there there was a, a huge lack of understanding of what's going on below the tip of the iceberg we could see the tip of the iceberg but we didn't know what was going on underneath And there was a period all the way through the 80s of really just trying to get a handle on where is this stuff. You couldn't even begin to do it, work with it at the academic level because we didn't have enough data to know what might be the problems. And we certainly didn't have an understanding of the geochemistry, of what is the geochemical characteristics of this material as it gets into the ground
0: what's the you mentioned waste a few times there has the is the concept of waste remained the same since then to nowadays because to me waste means a certain thing it means it can can be a a huge number of different things uh, within environmental remediation what was what was sort of understood as being waste back then
1: the it wasn't even articulated that much as waste it it was more viewed as these are the outputs from a manufacturing process that we can't use and if we can recycle it if it has if it makes economic sense to recycle it we will but if we can't it it wasn't seen so much as a dangerous off product but more as a a material that you needed to um manage to to really get it out of your way i mean keep in mind up until the 60s and and this guidance wasn't really uh pulled from the american chemical council until the late 1970s the way they recommended getting rid of a solvent uh waste material was to find a sandy soil and pour it in it that that was their recommendation i mean our understanding was that the world could absorb it that the that this material would break down. So our understanding of it, yes, it was understanding there was a waste. But the understanding that its permanence and its ability to move great distances and not be absorbed—that wasn't understood uh, at all. Uh, just what is the significance? Because remember, it's about in this time period, a lot of these products. Take TCE, which is a widely used. It was a widely used solvent. TCE was used in food products. Um, if you, you're you drying decaffeinated coffee, the likelihood is that decaffeinated coffee was leached using TCE. Um, now, it's, it, we're spending billions of dollars to remove TCE from groundwater, which people aren't drinking, when in the, uh, up into the 70s, it was approved for use in food products.
0: That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, just nipping back to the the what you just said about pouring solvents into sandy soil as as a as a disposal outlet. You can't imagine anybody getting away with that right now as a as a as a, a sort of a scientific idea. No, I mean, a good, good sustainable method. But I suppose it's well, and you you raise a good point. It's, it's one thing.
1: You know, it's a law of unintended consequences. Is that our, Problems with soil and groundwater contamination were exacerbated by solving other problems, and this is not unusual. And you see the same pattern; it repeats itself as other countries adopted, um, many countries adopted a similar legal structure that the U.S. had. Uh, of course, in, in Europe and other developed countries, they were working in parallel on their own systems for trying to manage this, but is that look what happened in the 70s as air emissions uh, like from coal plants and from manufacturing facilities and water emissions were controlled and a lot of sludge was developed there there were no licensed landfills there there was a big research study done in 79 it's called the bevels amendment in which congress asked for a uh, had a survey done of what was the status of land disposal and there were thousands of facilities that were not uh, not permanent there was no real national permitting structure so what happened people these companies were generating all the sludge and any place to put it and that was a time period in which there were a lot of questionable disposal practices that uh, a lot of small mom and pop outfits there so is money to be made for disposing of this stuff and they would pick it up and you know they would have contracts with 10 20 local manufacturing facilities and They'd haul it off to their property and dump it in a pond. That was extremely common uh, because they didn't they they didn't know that they were just moving the problem from one place to another.
0: They thought that once they dumped it, it's fine. The earth would sort of swallow it up and no one would see it again. was that right. the sort of general feeling. I suppose who would, thinking from a liability perspective, if they took the waste and said, Yep, yeah, we'll take it. Is it their response? Is it the mom and pop company's responsibility for that problem now? Is it as this, you know, if those ponds are still. Well,
1: these are these are to a large extent our biggest problems now, and and the same problem repeated itself. I, I've been heavily involved in, in the U.S. and in Europe and in uh, Latin America, and the same pattern happened everywhere that as. The set of laws became more stringent. At first, there was no infrastructure to manage this material, and these individuals, the, these companies that would take the material, you know, they yes, they should be liable. But you know, if um, if the outfit has been bankrupt for the last 30 years and they vanished, or it was uh, Fred who decided to set up a waste hauling business and Fred's assets consisted of a trailer and five acres of land, you know, that, <laughs> and you're sitting on a liability that may cost fifty million dollars to clean up, and and that's that's why the the existence of Superfund and then the state Superfund programs that began to be um, that came into play in the late '70s and the early '80s, and then with the amendments that occurred. Those were to deal with those type problems of these sites in which the that there was no it wasn't associated specifically with a manufacturing facility, but they it was a much more ambiguous line of responsibility in this dealing with landfills lagoons disposal lagoons um, a variety of waste disposal facilities and that and that that began to all come into great clarity in the 1980s. So you see a transition from the 60s, there begins to be a management of point sources that creates a new problem uh, with land disposal. So that uh, begins to be addressed with RECRA, Superfund, the HISRA amendments, the, those begin to be addressed. And then there's a period of from the 80s through the 90s, especially the early 90s, that people are largely flying blind. They know basically what might work. Uh, There was a huge evolution, or not evolution, but I remember in the EPA um, emerging technologies website that existed in the 90s, there were maybe 350 to 400, uh, all these neat technologies and, and companies, some of the large companies were coming up with All sorts of fancy things that they could do for the subsurface treatment of solidification, vitrification, the lasagna method. There are hundreds of these companies that were coming up with. I've got to ask you now, you've got the
0: lasagna method I've never heard of. You've got to explain that.
1: (laughs) The lasagna process, what it consisted of, is creating a direct current uh, electric field in the subsurface and to force the contaminants to migrate from the soil. Into a treatment zone where the contaminants could be removed by sorption, immobilisation, vacuum extraction, but consider what this took, what what this meant is trying to get a electricity delivery system into the into the subsurface, and this may be this you're trying to heat up a block of soil. The amount of electricity required was just staggering now what's interesting we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later when we, when we, when we get into the what is of the current stage the ancillary no one ever really considered what are the ancillary impacts of the generation of all this electricity because how much coal are you having to mine how much transportation is it to get that coal to the power plant What is the emissions that are associated with that power plant? The emissions then create uh, coal ash that is creating a new problem. So (laughs) we're solving one problem. It's so typical of the human response to problems is we see a problem. Okay, here is an engineering response to that problem. And it's solving that problem. But the human tendency is... To declare victory because we have a measure of solving that problem we don't consider about what problem have we just created and the lasagna process is a is a great example of the huge ancillary problems that would be created by applying this incredible demand electrical demand electricity demand to remove a contaminant especially if you're in a situation in which the the, the contaminant is mobile and stable it's not going anywhere you're creating this huge ancillary impact, moving all this other stuff around the country, coal and trucks to move it and trains to move it and conveyors to move it into a power plant. And then we pump emissions into the air and then we take the coal ash. So it's um,
0: it's indicative of
1: the nature of the problem.
0: The um, It sounds as though, just jumping back to the the early 90s to the late 90s, it sounds though like there was a bit of a survival of the fittest in terms of technologies. Was there a lot going into the 90s and then just the ones that really had a decent effect for a reasonable cost made it out?
1: The, the ones, yes, there, there was there was a realization that, again, there was no magic, silver bullet. And there was survival of the fittest and there weren't very many that were fit. There were lots of ideas that worked, but it's defining what do you mean by work? And when the cost is so outlandish at that at that point the the ancillary environmental impacts weren't really at play. what was it what was driven by uh, what it was driven by is the using cost which is a measure of ancillary impacts, of course, because cost is represents um, saved labor you know what 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 dollars are, what money is, is uh, accumulated um, wealth that is uh, from prior production of value that's accumulated and that can be applied to solve some problem. So that that was the the comparison. Most of these technologies just fell by the way, um, and and some very very promising ones ones that we did find very effective, like thermal desorption, uh, we used on multiple sites very very expensive but a lot cheaper in many cases than hauling it off to a landfill uh, at great distances you know those uh, that technology even has become much less common now because the of the availability of many more landfills and well-designed landfills so the ability to pick the stuff up and carry it to another location which um the the type techniques that we have evolved to have have really uh, boiled down to just a few classes of what we really evolved to by the time we got out of the 1990s into the 2000s.
0: Was, was cost the main driver for a lot of these projects? Was it just cost? Nobody, I assume nobody really considers sustainability back then, but also was there anything else which drove this? Well, it's you have parallel
1: pressures in society occurring in that time period if you know the superfund was a unique situation because most superfund sites are particularly complex is like a
0: is a site where you've got a huge contamination problem but no no liability holder is that right
1: well there's not usually the liability you have to reach back several layers to find the responsible party and the the with the responsible parties being for example the arrangers who may have arranged to Carry waste material or have waste material disposed, or the transporters or the property owner, there's, um, there can be some manufacturing facilities that go bankrupt, and there's a reach back into prior owners of the facility to get all those who are in the liability train. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a, a large number of facilities were very, very common with, say, pesticide formulators, where there would be companies that didn't run the facility, but they were they were told they told they they would send the facility their technical grade product that they made might be a uh, you know that whatever pesticide they're making they would send it to the formulator and then the formulator would formulate a particular mix of pesticides for sale for you know whatever product it was going out for Uh, and then the companies who sent that product there the the actual company that created the contamination they're gone bankrupt usually a lot of these guys were small um local entrepreneurs that were pillars of the community so that's that's the other thing that's really really interesting is that much much if not the the even vast majority of our contaminant problems uh, are associated with small town entrepreneurs who had great businesses um, they were local chemist or a local banker who came up with a good plan built a business uh, didn't know what the proper way to dispose of this material nobody did Um, later they would be bought out or they'd go bankrupt and then the companies that use them would be left holding the bag so the idea that the the polluter pays in the public mind we really kind of look on the big nasty multinational that is out there you know evilly disposing of this material. And that's, that is That is a very skewed perception. Uh, these things were happening because people didn't know, and frequently the, the worst offenders were the pillar of the community, the deacon in the local church. Um, and it's long forgotten that when the, that that's who was responsible when it was happening, but that person in that company is long gone, and now some big multinational acquired it through Fifteen different acquisitions—they're they're holding the bag, and they're the ones that are seen as the big evil doer. Um, now, you, you asked, was cost driver. Um, the driver? The—it was a factor. Uh, they, with regard from the regulatory agencies, they would consider—they consider cost, but it's not. They're usually driven by—they want to maximize reduction of the contamination.
0: What do you think about the the modern day where we are now as an as the environmental remediation industry what do you what do you think where do you think we're going right uh well we we've gotten
1: we've gotten things really right and we've gotten things really wrong and they are in absolute parallel with each other what we've really gotten right is the and this has largely come at the state level it has been there's been attempts at the federal level with the super, with, uh, Superfund and RECRA, but it's, it's at the state level where the, the growth and the sophistication of the brownfields programs has improved uh, the putting of properties back into uh, reasonable use and approaching the contamination, you know, recognizing that you can control the risk pathways without removing all the contamination, that there is a a balance. What the Brownfields programs have have recognized is that there is a reasonable balance uh, that you can put a property back to use. It doesn't need to be returned to clean conditions, that you can protect the various parties, the seller and the buyer, against the uncontrolled risk, that there are ways to do that uh, with the, the, the regulatory programs, the legal programs, such that a property can be put back to use even while contamination is still there. The contamination is hurting no one and that there's more damage being done by keeping the property as a blight and it's not a benefit to the community. It's keeping it as a blight, but it's a perceptional blight. You know, the, the groundwater is not being consumed, you know, in, in many locations and urban areas. No one would dare drink that groundwater anyway. You know, no one's going to stick a well into the middle of Atlanta and drink that water. There's probably plenty of other things that would kill them before the solvent that may still be there is going to get them. No one's going to drink that water. And, and in virtually all these sites, you know, we're dealing with most contaminated sites. They... Contamination first hit the ground in the groundwater fifty years ago in a lot of these legacy sites, it's stable. You know it's not still expanding. We know we can know where it is and demonstrate that there's not a risk at the boundary, uh, either through something like vapor intrusion back up uh, coming up into buildings or that it's not moving into an adjacent water body. We can show that, and let's get the property back into use. So that's what we've done right.
0: The whole, yeah, the whole sort of risk-based um, assessment is is definitely what I'm familiar with now. Uh, do you think the Do you think there's still some barriers to that mentality and that that way of approaching
1: remedial brownfields is the essence of that? It's saying what is the right balance between cleaning things up. See, just, even the concept of clean. It's difficult to get our, our hands around Because Everything we do has an impact You know, you're, I'm sitting here in this room Breathing Well, the carbon uh, Dioxide that I'm putting out, it's an impact You know, if you get enough of it, it's a poison You're, we're all breathing We're we're all creating Some product The Our physical systems Absorb process and And move that move those materials in a cycle. In the concept of clean and saying that we're gonna clean up this property and remove all the contamination, to try to balance that, the the idea of using the risk-based approach and say, okay, what is the real risk to it? We've done a lot of things right with the risk-based approach. We've also done a lot of things wrong. And one of the big wrong that we've done is had meaningless standards of incremental risk. Now, we use what's thrown out there is one times 10 to the minus six incremental risk is the acceptable risk. But then that is saying we're going to clean up this water. We're going to use a risk based approach for cleaning up the water. We need to reach a standard that if someone drank the water, they would only have a one in 10 to the minus six incremental risk that they would uh, contract cancer. Well, one, no one's going to drink the water you know, in vastly all the situations, no one's going to drink the water. So even the basic premise of the risk assessment is flawed. And then how we apply a standard to that risk assessment is greatly flawed. Why 10 to the minus 6 incremental risk? There's a 30% chance that each one of us is going to contract cancer. So it goes with an incremental risk. If all these things happen if the person drank all this water if they did drank this much water and they did it for 30 years so they lived in the same place for 30 years they did all these things their risk goes from point three to point three 0, zero 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 one so is that a reasonable standard
0: so what in, what would you replace those standards with then what how could we that? In most of our,
1: in, in a lot of the situations, the, the right risk balance is done, and, and back to my Brownfield example, but that happens, interestingly enough, when a piece of property actually has significant economic value um, in, in where I live, in Atlanta. A contaminated that there, there was significant industrial activity in gentrifying parts of town. Those properties, there is a balanced risk approach with a brownfields redevelopment that occurs with those properties. With this contamination left in the ground, a way is found to, to establish that all right, we're not gonna we're not gonna remove all this contamination, but we're going to control the boundaries so there's not an impact on an environmental receptor or a human receptor. And it's not based upon reaching a numerical values say this soil is clean to this level or this groundwater is clean to this level it's instead establishing that the conditions that are there cannot migrate into a receptor and those conditions are demonstrably stable so it's changing what we measure for our risk the risk is the pathway not the, the, the concentration of the quality of the material, but it's, it's a pathway. Now, what's interesting as we've become so concerned, realistically so, about environmental justice, what's interesting is it's not that there aren't contaminated sites in well healed areas. The difference is there's economic motivation to do something about those, not cleaning them up, but there's economic motivation to balance what's there with redevelopment of the site. The sites that stay a blight, is the ones that because there's not an economic motivation to reuse the site, the cleanup standards remain impossible to achieve, which means the site doesn't get cleaned up and doesn't get reused. So there's a there's there's a very interesting conundrum or contradiction that's occurring in our, our view that the, the tendency is to think that we don't, we're... we're uh, we're leaving contamination. We, we don't want to leave contamination. It's an, it's an environmental justice impact to do that. When the reality is, the, the, the real problem is not whether we're leaving contamination there, but whether we are managing that material in such a way that it is assured that there's not a completed pathway. And at the same time, that property is put back into beneficial reuse for the community. And frequently it can't be put back into beneficial reuse for the community because the cost of what is being demanded for cleaning up exceeds any potential economic value of the property. You know, if it's going to cost a million dollars an acre and the property is worth fifty thousand an acre, then nothing's going to happen with the property.
0: Do you say it has to be the the target of what it's being cleaned up towards that has to change as opposed to sort of the, methodology or the
1: well it needs the, the and this is where this is where we have gotten it wrong you know i, I said where we've gotten it right with regard to the uh the value and the f- functioning of the brownfields programs which by the way um you know our very robust. Uh, They're extremely robust in uh, Europe. Uh, They're robust in most of the United States. The one where we've gotten it hugely wrong is the large, what I call the the charismatic sites. Uh, Old refineries, petrochemical facilities, old manufacturing facilities, large landfills or disposal sites that are being managed under state uh, Superfund sites or federal Superfund sites; these are where we've gotten it wildly wrong. Is where we have it's what I call the um, uh, the industrial remediation complex. That there is a whole infrastructure, whole ecosystem of consultants and EPA and state environmental protection agency uh, personnel. Um, all this infrastructure that's wrapped around these sites that are just on autopilot, that it's just endless, usually they've already they, they've dealt fairly well with the soil contamination, but they're just on endless autopilot dealing with the groundwater at huge cost with almost no progress. And that's where we've gotten it hugely wrong, where there's uh, just a, um, a, a shameful continuing waste of resources in dealing with a problem that would not really advancing improvement of the environment in a holistic way
0: so that is the end of this episode we've had to split this podcast into two separate parts because there's so much to speak to Billy about but do not worry because that second part is available right now on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on as well Um, please go have a listen to that second part in that one we're going to discuss with Billy about the holistic tools that he has been using that are more cost effective and less invasive than traditional mediation methods so well worth a listen I really hope you've enjoyed this part and I hope you'll enjoy part two as well hope to speak to you soon bye bye for now